0: Okay, let's get started. Welcome everybody. So this is the second year of our Science and Cooking Lecture Series, and uh, we're going to have a whole series of uh, lectures. Um, I should acknowledge right at the start, as I will each time, uh, that we're very fortunate to be sponsored by uh, this group of uh, organizations, Jose Andres, who by the way, will be one of the speakers. Um, the Alyssia Foundation uh, has been integral in uh, helping us uh, both financially with support and intellectually with the uh, class that this lecture series is associated with. Montferrand Whole Foods on River Street. Uh, ULABA provides some of the important constant temperature baths that we use in our uh, uh, in our class, and uh, this bank helps uh, support uh, Alicia. So this is a lecture series that's associated with a class that's offered here at Harvard. I'm Dave Waits, um, I'm teaching the class. Um, I have a very, very able assistance by a large group of people who are working on it. Um, the Lectures that we'll be hearing are all associated with one of the lectures of the class. So this class is science and cooking from haute cuisine to soft matter science. It's really a science class, as well as something, a class about cooking. And we do both uh, in the class. So for example, the class today uh, had a review of math that we're going to use a discussion of scientific rigor, and a discussion of the historical context. Now, the public lectures, of which this is the first, are always associated with the class, and this is our way of trying to share some of the renowned chefs and other visitors that we have with the rest of the Harvard community. So we're going to have a series of great chefs and great lectures. Most of the time, the lectures will be on Monday, but we have today's lecture on Tuesday uh, because, yesterday, because of the holiday yesterday. Um, we're going to do things slightly differently than we did last year. This is a series of lectures associated with the class, and the class is really a science and cooking class. And so we're going to have a little bit more explanation of some of the science that goes along with each of the chefs. I think we're slightly better prepared so we can do this perhaps a little better than in the mad rush that we did uh, last year. Um, And so we wanna try and relate what the chefs have to say to some of the science that we teach in the class. Um, So I should remind you what I reminded the class. This is the second year that we had the class. Last year, we had a new class, we had new traditions. And so I expect the same for these public lectures. Every time we see a great dessert, and we'll see many of them uh, today, this is an example of one of the great desserts that was made in the lab. One of the fun things about this course is that we get to eat the lab. (laughs) So we can eat this lab. But every time we see a great dessert, we clap. And this is a science class So every science class has equations. And this is one of the examples of one of the equations that we will discuss in class. And if you come to these lectures, we'll discuss in these lectures. And since this is really a science and cooking class, every time we see equation, we clap. So for somebody like myself who's been trying to teach physics to undergraduates for years and years, I'm very proud of the fact that I can actually get people to clap when they see (laughs) equations. (laughs) So next week, the lecture will be on Monday, and Joan Roca, one of the wonderful chefs from uh, Barcelona, will be uh, discussing, uh, he'll talk about precision cooking. Um, He'll use some of the modern apparatus that people use in kitchens, we'll see a little bit of that uh, today. And so today, without further ado, I'd like to introduce uh, the people who are responsible. First of all, I'd like to introduce Pia Sorensen, who's really helping a lot with the class. And we couldn't do it with class without her. So Pia, thank you. And the speakers today are Harold McGee. Harold actually literally wrote the textbook. He wrote the textbook that we use in class. We're really exceptionally fortunate that he's going to contribute to the class with a series of lectures. He'll offer the first lecture uh, today, but he'll be back several times in the class to help us uh, teach people. And he really is extremely knowledgeable about both the relationship, both cooking and the relationship of science to cooking. And Dave Arnold is a, excellent person for demonstrations and i hope we're going to see a whole lot of really fun demonstrations so without further ado harold
1: all right thank you thank you very much wonderful to be here thank you dave um and i'm especially delighted to be here uh talking to you about this subject because I first started writing about this subject right around here. I wrote the first edition of On Food and Cooking in Cambridge. Uh, I'll show you one of the libraries I worked in a little bit later on. Um, I never dreamed in the late 1970s that Harvard would ever deign to give a course on cooking, so times have changed, and I'm I'm delighted. I can make a living now. And just a, an extra word or two about Dave Arnold. Uh, Dave and I met uh, maybe seven, eight years ago, and um, he is the director of culinary technologies at the French Culinary Institute in New York. And he, as far as I'm concerned, is the one guy in the world who knows the most about the the use of cutting-edge technologies in the modern kitchen. And he's going to be showing us some of those things uh, uh, well sprinkled throughout the le- lecture. We're, um, as you'll see, some things are, are not quite where they're supposed to be at this point in the evening, but we'll, we'll figure something out. Anyway, what I'm going to do is just give you a, a very quick surf through culinary history from uh, the perspective of science, just to talk about uh, the way that science and cooking have influenced each other, some of the good things that science has had to offer to the kitchen, some of the not-so-good things that it has had to offer, some of which you still hear all the time. Um, And then I'm going to uh, give you a brief introduction to this very interesting moment in culinary history. Uh, the last 20 years have been really fascinating and has to do with a real shift in the way professional chefs view their vocation. And uh, because you're going to be having a parade of remarkable chefs coming through Cambridge uh, beginning next week, uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about um, how this movement has come about and a little bit about a few of those chefs just so that you uh, have your appetite whetted and you come back for all of those lectures. So. Uh, I'm going to start with something that uh, Dave asked me to do because we realized in talking about the beginning of the course that nowhere in the course was cooking defined. The course is about cooking, and we hadn't bothered to just ask ourselves, well, what is it really that cooking is? So Dave suggested that I prov- provide a definition to start out with, and then he, from the perspective of science, is going to modify that. We'll have a conversation about it, and who knows where we'll end up by the end of the course. But this is where we're beginning. Essentially, with the, the dictionary definition, the preparation of food for heat, for eating, especially by means of heat, um, But the uh, the term, the word, English word comes from a Latin root, which I think is very suggestive. The root means those things, but it also means to ripen, as in the, uh, the case of fruits, and it means to digest, which are two other transformations of, uh, of edible ingredients. Uh, one is done by the plant that produces the fruit, or the fruit itself, and the other is done by our body in the process of assimilating it. And it seems to me that uh, there's something in there uh, to, to think about that's very interesting. What is it about the, uh, the preparation of food for eating that uh, gets us so interested in it? Why are there so many people here? Uh, listening to a lecture on on food. I mean, we we love it, and we love cooking, we love cooked foods. Why? Uh, And it seems to me that the fact that uh, the root comes from uh, a word that includes the process of ripening is a clue. Daniel uh, from uh, back here brought me a peach to show you, because uh, uh, many chefs these days will say they, they do amazing things, uh, the kinds of things that Dave is going to demonstrate, in order to delight and surprise you. But they'll also say, you know, if, if this peach is perfectly ripe, then the best thing you can do with it is put it on a plate with a knife and a napkin to mop up the juices. Uh, a fruit, in a way, is a perfect food. And it is that way because it was designed to be that. It was It's one of the few things in nature that we're actually meant to eat. The plant wants us to eat them so that we'll uh, take the seeds with us and plant the seeds far away from the parent plant. So these are concocted, these are cooked for us by nature, and it seems to me that a lot of what we do in cooking is, is an attempt to Uh, in some way approach the deliciousness, the complexity, the balance of a perfectly ripe piece of fruit. Um, That said, uh, cooking does things that nature can't do, and can you smell what what Pia is taking care of over here in the back of the room? What's going on in that pot? Caramelization. So I don't know if I left any sugar in the Container Probably not, but you all know what sugar looks like. It's white crystals. <coughs> it's, it's, it's a single, pure molecule, one molecule. Um, you take that one molecule, you put it in a pot, you add heat, and that one molecule, uh, first of all, the crystals melt, and they start to bubble. Uh, the, so the, the physical state changes. Uh, the color changes, and of course you end up with this amazing aroma, which you can smell a mile away. Uh, So uh, this to me is also the essence of cooking. It's taking matter and applying human ingenuity and energy to transform it in a way that makes it more interesting. And to me this is the the best example of culinary alchemy, that you take one molecule, you end up with thousands of molecules that give us this this, uh, room-filling aroma and uh, we're probably getting close to burning it, right, Pia? So we can, we can stop there. <laughs> okay, good. Okay, um, so a little bit now about uh, the development of cooking and its science. Uh, I went into much more detail this afternoon with the class uh, about different when it was the, in history, the different kinds of uh, foods appeared, when we figured out how to work with sugar, when we figured out how to make emulsions, when we figured out how to make thickened sauces. All of these things are are topics that are going to be covered in the course. I'm not going to uh, inflict all of that on you, but just a a couple of examples. Of course, beginning with fire. That's all that was really going on here, the application of heat energy to transform matter. And uh, of course, that made cooking possible. Richard Wrangham, here at Harvard, has advanced the hypothesis that maybe that's also what, it, what made humanity possible. He's written a book that argues that what uh, allowed Homo erectus to evolve into Homo sapiens was the invention of cooking. Uh, by cooking roots, for example, you can uh, get starches to turn into something that are actually digestible. Pure starch, uh, raw starch, is not digestible. Cook it and it is, and you can get all those calories. And we needed calories to develop these big brains. So uh, it's a a really interesting um, argument. Uh, Lots of pros and cons. People uh, in his field, some of them believe it, some of them don't. Uh, But it's a a fascinating, uh, it's going to be fascinating to see how it develops because the question now is how far back can you find evidence of cooking? At the moment, we're only maybe 100,000 years ago. He's saying it's more like a million years ago. And so it's going to be interesting to see what anthropologists are able to find. Um, uh, just a, a quick picture uh, snapshot from the Middle Ages. That's a time when people figured out how to make gelatin jellies, uh, and they went into great detail into uh, how to clarify them. Uh, and then make them into decorative things for, uh, for the court. But they also were very interested in food as entertainment. And that's something that's come to the fore in the last 20 years or so. Uh, I just want to show you that it's nothing new to use liquid nitrogen and lasers in the kitchen. <clears throat> so this is the, the uh, 15th century, sorry about that, uh, the 15th century uh, version of that kind of showmanship. Uh, a recipe for how to make a chicken squawk while it's on the spit. And you notice that it involves um, sulfur and mercury in the chicken. Not such a great idea, probably, but... Uh, we, so we've, we've learned some chemistry in the meantime. Uh, but m- nothing new about, about using food to, to entertain other people. Uh, and now about some of the contributions that science uh, has really made to, to cooking. And uh, you can go back to uh, the Royal Society at a time when Isaac Newton was a member to find uh, the first instance of that. And so this is a man named Denis Papin. And do you recognize what the the machine is in that slide? Pressure cooker. cooker. So the pressure cooker goes back to the 17th century, and it was developed because uh, at the Royal Society were a number of men who were responsible for developing the the gas laws, the relationships between pressure and temperature and volume. And Denis Papin was working for one of those men, Robert Boyle, and got the idea of putting that information to use and making a device that would be a much more efficient way to cook than cooking over an open fire. So he realized that if you could make a container and manage to clamp it shut, and boil water inside it that the pressure would build up and therefore the temperature would build up and you'd be able to cook things uh, much faster. So uh, this was, you know, a real innovation. There had been no cooking like this on the face of the earth up to this point, and the the members of the Royal Society who experienced it really did talk about it as as a completely new experience. So the... um, Uh, The members of the Royal Society were mostly bachelors. Uh, They uh, dined with each other, usually at each other's lodgings, and every once in a while after he developed the digester, the pressure cooker, um, they would meet up. Uh, Papin would bring along his digesters, kind of like a Tupperware party or something. Uh, And other people would bring uh, ingredients, and they would see what the pressure cooker would do to them. And we have these wonderful diary uh, entries, Um, I I won't bother to read it, but just you you can see that he's just exclaiming, he says, this is great, Uh, and this was like nothing else I'd ever had before, but then neither was this, and neither was this. They'd never been able to eat bones as if they were like nothing but cheese. Um, So it it was uh, a new experience of food, made possible by scientific understanding of um, the nature of the universe. Uh, now at this point we had planned to do a demonstration. Oh no, another couple of right. Yeah, sorry, we're just sorry. Show this stuff. Right, right. Uh, after the next one. But you
2: want uh, to talk about the pressure cooker? We're going to talk about the pressure cooker. The new uh, stuff. Okay. All right, to, right, 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 yeah, yeah. right.
1: Right. Um, so. Don't have to. Uh, <laughs> if you read uh, what the what the diarists said in the seventeenth century about the pressure cooker, of course, to us it's kind of old hat. Uh, I've actually never cooked a bone to see what it's like uh, with the consistency of cheese, but I do know, and I use the pressure cooker to to speed up cooking. All that kind of thing is fairly um, straightforward. But in this time, when uh, chefs are looking to uh, find new ingredients, new techniques, but also looking at old pieces of equipment, familiar pieces of, of equipment, and finding new things to do with them, Uh, People have been doing really interesting things with pressure cookers recently, and Dave has been at the forefront of this. Well, uh, pressure cookers are extremely interesting uh,
2: because they're one of the things that... Fundamentally alters the way you cook because by altering the pressure we're altering the temperature at which things cook So certain things can happen at those elevated temperatures that you can't get in water normally unless you apply pressure But no one has really spent the time until the past couple of years to carefully observe what's going on in a pressure cooker to try and use some of those effects to Good advantage uh, There's a famous uh, cookbook author Lorna Sass who wrote a book called under pressure like I think it was, what it was called right mm-hmm. the real under pressure not Thomas Keller's book under pressure and as a and the no offense to Thomas Keller's book on on on, cook, <laughs> on a vacuum cooking, but the um, uh, she had made a comment and she said that uh, you need to add a lot of onions to things when you pressure cook them because the uh, onion flavor dissipates. I said, well, "That's interesting." So I cook some onions and. Uh, Sure enough, the flavor dissipated, so we cook some stuff that are similar to onions. Garlic, and the flavor dissipates. So it turns out if you pressure cook garlic uh, at 15 psi, which is roughly 250 change degrees uh, Fahrenheit, uh, as opposed to 212, which you're normally boiling at, uh, all of the stuff that makes you stink the next day in garlic goes away. So you can eat uh, clove after clove after clove of it, which you wouldn't normally do because it's mushy, because the texture is mushy, but you can blend them into a sauce, and you don't stink the next day. Uh, you can take, uh, we were going to do this but uh, it turned out to be a nightmare so we didn't do it. Uh, you can take um, onions and you can pressure cook them and they've lost all of the pungency of an onion and all that's left is the sweetness. So you can actually make an ice cream out of this. So we tried other things. These, the, both of these things have sulfur compounds in them that are, are responsible for their pungency. So we chose something else that was similar. Uh, horseradish. Horseradish. Knocked out. So you can take horseradish and you can have horseradish that is, uh, you can just eat like just eat by the bushel, the horseradish. It's delicious. Uh, also, there are things that have sulfur compounds but also get texture modified, like onion, uh, onion seeds, mustard seeds rather. You take mustard seeds and you pressure cook them with vinegar and they puff up like caviar and you can pop them in your mouth. But also, they're pleasant to eat in large quantities as long as you mix some sugar in afterwards. So there's, uh, there's all sorts of new things you can do. What, like, we can also we can speed up Maillard reactions in certain things like eggs. So if you take an egg and you pressure cook an egg for an hour or so, right, uh, because the egg is alkaline, you can get browning, a Maillard reaction in it, that you couldn't possibly get unless you cooked for several days in a normal, in normal technique. So there's all sorts of new things you can do with a pressure cooker to modify texture, to modify flavor, if you observe carefully what's going on every time you put something in and out. Here's something you might not have known. How many of you own a pressure cooker out there? Good. Thank God. Now listen, when you make a stock with pressure cooker, I'm not going to go into the ins and outs because it's very complicated, but do this. If you take a made stock, already made stock, put it in a pressure cooker and close it, right, and cook it, it comes out browner than you put it in. Like things happen in the pressure cooker. This is basically like observing those kinds of things and what's going on with the taste, tasting side by side, paying close attention is how you come up with new techniques for a piece of equipment that's been around for a long, long time. (laughs)
1: <laughs> so that's the pressure cooker, um, <laughs> and that's just the half of it. I mean, you didn't go into the, the durian. You didn't.
2: Oh, no. Oh, you can go into the durian.
1: No, you, it was your experience.
2: So, uh, so during the class today, they're trying to teach uh, the students that repeatability is vitally important, and taking records is vitally important, and you know it's be- being careful with your measurements and your recording, which is true. So, one of the best things I ever made in my life was you, uh, durian. Guys, familiar the super stinky fruit. Yeah, like hyper stinky, like you're not allowed to bring it into your hotel room, but everyone who loves it loves it, uh, and it's fantastic. Um, so, when you cook durian, which also has a lot of these kind of sulfury notes to them, you can unstink it in a pressure cooker. So, people who actually grew up on durian and who love the stink don't like the pressure cooked durian because they're like, where's the stink? But, um, <laughs> but uh, most people like it. And uh, I, I randomly threw some stuff in to run a test on it, and I didn't record anything. I didn't record the time. I didn't record the amount of durian that went in. I didn't record the liquid that I had added and the result was the most delicious durian caramel that was unbelievable. I was so psyched and uh, I ran a month of tests to try and recreate what I had done without uh, having the records and was unable to do it. So one of the best things I've ever made, I will never make again, most likely, because of poor record keeping. So don't be a schmuck like me, (laughs)
1: keep records. All kinds of lessons there. So okay, moving on from the pressure cooker um, uh, to uh, an example of something that um, is going to be a recurrent theme in the course, that you can learn very interesting things about the way the world works, often from the simplest observations and minimal calculations, using some math but uh, not having to remember anything about calculus, for example. Uh, Just arithmetic. So here's an example. Uh, Benjamin Franklin, back in the middle of the 18th century, could have figured out very easily how big a molecule is. 110, 120 years before people agreed at last that there were such things as molecules, he could have, uh, uh, he he essentially did measure uh, the size, but, but didn't go on to calculate it. What happened was that he, he did a lot of traveling back and forth between the states and Europe. Uh, he was often in a flotilla of ships, and he noticed that whenever one of the ships in the flotilla was, uh, that the cooks were dumping the garbage from uh, preparing food, that the wake was calmed behind the ship. So oil being poured on troubled waters, the, the, the water was calmed. He was very interested in that phenomenon, as he was interested in many phenomena, and he decided to do some experiments to try to figure out what was going on. And one of them was this one. He went to this pond just outside London, Clapham Pond, and he took a teaspoonful of oil on a windy day and put some near shore, uh, just poured it very gently to make sure it would stay on the surface. Of course, oil and water don't mix, oil floats. And so he put, put a little oil, uh, a teaspoon of oil on the water Uh, the wind then blew it into the middle of the pond, and he observed how big a patch he was able to calm with that teaspoon of oil. And the answer was about half an acre, about half the the pond, which he estimated at an acre. So, uh, and, you know, where it stopped, you figure, well, that's where the oil stopped. So there aren't any molecules of oil past that, or there isn't any oil substance past that. So what's left is, is the original volu- volume of oil spread out into as thin a sheet as can possibly be made. And it turns out that uh, that's a really good way to figure out how thick one molecule of oil is. And so we uh, went through the, the calculations. <laughs> uh, lots of equations on that, on that slide. Um, uh, to, to demonstrate that he could have figured out very easily just by uh, the, the simplest of arithmetic that a molecule would be of oil would be about one nanometer, uh, which is within a factor of 10 of what it really is. Um, so, uh, just a demonstration of observation and calculation leading to real insights into the way the world works. Now, at this point, oh, it's going to work, okay? Well, I don't know. It might work. Okay. so. We've got a a demonstration that speaks somewhat to the same point, that you can, in the kitchen, doing sort of everyday things, this is not everyday, but uh, uh, making mayonnaise, for example, a similar sort of thing, you can end up uh, with a mass of material and end up dividing it into um, astronomically large numbers of particles, or fibers in this case.
2: So we're going to try to make a uh, traditional kind of dragon's beard candy, which is uh, there's actually, it's not there's a dragon's beard is what they call it in China, there's uh, one that's from Turkey, there's one from Iran, uh, they're all fairly similar and it's basically sugar that's cooked to this texture and the texture of it is vital and so since I was disorganized and didn't cook it till too recently, we're on the edge of it, not working, but the theory is that I can pull it and by putting a little bit of cornstarch, in this case mixed with uh, cocoa powder, just add a little flavor, uh, as I pull, that we can keep the strands separately and just by dividing it again and again, we can make an ungodly number of strands. Ready, that's what, two? It's a little okay. stiff, we'll see whether she...
1: Four, it's a little stiff, Harold, we might break it, but I hope not. Okay, so we're four strands, so we're just doubling the number of strands with every every turn. She's a little stiff. Okay, up to eight. Similar kind of thing happens when you make puff pastry. Sixteen.
2: The guys who are good at it, they get the texture exactly right, and it's much faster and more fluid, but they do it every day. (laughs) Uh, I think it's a good trade. 32. The real trick is to never, ever let go of it at any point, because you'll start losing strands. As long as one hand is always on it, you should end up not being too horribly off. What am I at now?
1: 64.
2: All right, so now it's going to start picking up, yeah? And I didn't follow my own rule and I lost a strand, jerk.
1: Where are we, Harold? Okay, 128.
2: Any guesses what I'm going to take this guy up to? Ah! (laughs) (laughs) 256. 512. My first Macintosh. <laughs> <laughs> that dates me, huh?
1: <laughs> okay, 1024. So from one strand to a thousand in minute and a half, 2048. 4,096, 8,192. Mm-hmm.
2: Good with the on-the-fly math
1: there. <laughs> All right, this is 15, so 16,284. And
2: that's where I'll keep
1: it. (laughs) Let me stretch it out a little bit. So what do you you calculate this out at, Harold, the average fiber width? So if if the initial rope is a centimeter in diameter, then these are going to be about a micron.
2: Dry out a little bit before I serve it, so that it uh, yeah. separates out better.
1: Okay. Want to say what it's
2: used for? You eat it. <laughs> 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 uh, no, uh, they typically, uh, typically it would be done with an, uh, an unflavored coating on the outside, and they would wrap something like chopped peanuts in it. Uh, the chocolate's good. My actual favorite is uh, is uh, vinegar powder with. Uh, vinegar powder and mustard powder and, and a little bit of cornstarch mixed and then with peanuts wrapped in the inside. It's incredibly delicious. But I didn't, I didn't order all of the stuff because I'm disorganized.
1: Sorry. <laughs> all right, so astronomical numbers and, and tiny sizes from big things. It's uh, amazing trans- transformations take place in the kitchen. Um, Okay, uh, another example of science making a real contribution to the kitchen. Unfortunately, this one was forgotten until about 20 years ago. Uh, Benjamin Thompson, Count Rumford, uh, a New Englander, uh, during colonial times, he made the mistake of choosing the wrong side in the Revolutionary War, and so he spent most of his career in Europe. Um, But he did some amazing things. I think he deserves to be remembered uh, as much as Benjamin Franklin uh, for his contributions to our understanding of things. One of the things he was interested in was heat. And he, for example, uh, was the first uh, person I'm aware of to describe uh, heat transfer by convection in liquids because he wanted to know why he kept burning his mouth on hot soup. Uh, So he was that kind of curious character. He, uh, he was very interested in energy-saving modes of cooking. And so the machine up there was designed originally to dry potatoes. Uh, uh, one day he decided uh, that he would try cooking meat in his potato dryer just to see what would happen. Uh, The potato dryer works, I mean, you don't want to cook the potatoes, you just want to dry them, so it was probably operating at 140, 150, 160 degrees Fahrenheit, and he just decided one day to put a leg of mutton into his potato dryer and see if he could cook it. And he left it in there for several hours, checked on it, it seemed as though it was still pretty much raw, so he decided that that experiment was a failure, closed it, Went, uh, locked up his workshop for the day and went home, and then came back the next morning, and there had been enough residual heat in the uh, potato dryer that he said when he, when he opened the door to his workshop, he was greeted the, with this amazing aroma. He then checked the uh, potato dryer, and he said the leg of mutton in there was the best he'd ever eaten. Uh, so he discovered the principle of low-temperature meat cooking in 17, or 18, 1800 or so, something that was only Uh, discovered by chefs maybe 10 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, He, uh, I think, is a model for the way uh, scientifically-minded people should approach things in the kitchen because rather than just resting on his laurels and saying, you know, I've discovered this amazing thing, uh, he decided to double-check to make sure that, you know, what he observed was a real phenomenon. So he did several more experiments. One was to... um, compare uh, a leg of mutton with another leg of mutton trimmed to the same weight that had been cooked over a fire in the traditional way uh, c- to the, uh, t- uh, the uh, leg of mutton cooked in, in his uh, potato dryer. So two legs of mutton cooked two different ways. He weighed them before and after. He discovered that the one that had been done in the potato dryer, sure enough, had several ounces of water, or, or several ounces more weight left in it. Uh, compared to the one done over the fire. And then he did what I think is the first taste test in history. So he uh, threw a party, and he put one leg of mutton at one end of the room and the other leg of mutton at the other end of the room, and at the end of the party, he weighed what was left. (laughs) And he reports that there was pretty much nothing left of the leg of mutton done in the dryer and lots left over from the one done over the fire. so uh as I say this is uh something that chefs now take for granted but for whatever reason that that um uh that discovery was just kind of overlooked i think partly because he was doing it in Europe and wasn't a famous guy and it just the, the word just never got around anyway he's uh i think a good role model in that way uh the worst role model I can think, think of for someone interested in understanding what's going on in the kitchen is this man, uh, a scientist, uh, Eustace Liebig, a chemist, uh, eminent chemist in the middle of the 19th century, worked in Germany, uh, took an interest in all kinds of things, as did Rumford, um, but Liebig was not so much of an experimentalist. <laughs> So he would come up with theories and then decide that, well, because he was Liebig and it was his theory, it was probably correct. Uh, So he came up with a theory uh, in this book, Researches on uh, Food, that if you wanted to keep the moisture in a piece of meat, then rather than doing what Rumford had discovered actually works, what you should do is sear the outside at a very high temperature to seal the juices in and um, I I think his model was probably cauterizing or something like that. You know, you you take something, you you seal up the pores so that whatever's inside can't get out. That's an interesting model, turns out it doesn't apply to meat, Uh, but he published this book anyway. As far as I know, he never did an experiment, Uh, and unfortunately, the book was hugely influential because this was right at a time when the cookbook industry was on the rise and there were multiple editions by the same author being published year after year and people were looking for ways to distinguish themselves from the rest of the crowd. And so here's this guy, eminent scientist, comes out with a new revolutionary way of cooking meat. By the way, it's the reverse of what was done traditionally. You would roast things far away from the fire to begin begin with until it was cooked through, and then at the very end, you would brown it just before serving. He was saying to do it the other way around. So new guy, new idea, good background, good credentials. So cookbooks started um, uh, revising themselves and presenting uh, uh, his theory as being fact. And in fact, it wasn't fact. Uh, So anyone who's cooked a piece of meat uh, properly so that it is still juicy knows that the juices come out no matter how hard you sear it on the outside. Uh, I gave a talk once at the Confederation of Canadian Chefs, so a room like this with lots of high hats, and I asked a show of hands how many people believe that searing meat seals in the juices. This is maybe 10, 15 years ago. 90% of the hands went up, and then I put this slide up and said, how many people have seen this when they've cooked meat perfectly? A few hands go up, and then how many people still believe that searing meat seals a <laughs> few? So, at least I convinced that room. You know, room by room, I'll, I'll be able to do something about it. <laughs> but you still hear it on TV shows and in magazines all the time, searing meat, seals, and the juices. Um, there was a long uh, period, a uh, kind of fallow period, for science in the kitchen that has to do with a variety of things. Home economics is one of them. Uh, There's a wonderful book on the subject, uh, Perfection Salad by Laura Shapiro. Um, um, World War I, all kinds of things kind of diverted the attention of uh, scientifically-minded people away from what happens in home and restaurant kitchens and toward industry. And that has sort of been the case for, or was the case for for many decades. Finally, in um, uh, the 1960s, a, an eminent scientist in England took an interest in, in um, delving into the physics of cooking. He loved food, he loved to cook, and he realized at some point that um, he had a real contribution to make because no one had really talked about this. And in fact, he gave a lecture at the Royal Institution of London, uh, an institution that Count Rumford actually started back in the 19th century, uh, in which he said, it's, it's a sad reflection on our society that we know more about what's happening on other planets than what's going on in our own kitchens. And so he started to try to do something about that. And this graph is, is one example of that. Uh, trying to find out what is going on inside our souffles, he made a souffle in his home kitchen, put a thermocouple from his lab <coughs> into the center of it, and then watched the temperature change as it cooked. And what he noticed was, and uh, for whatever reason, uh, time zero is at the right of this chart, and <laughs> it being done was at the, at the left. Um, the, the temperature rises on the inside, and then it plateaus, and then it starts, starts to go up again. And what he discovered by trial and error was the perfect texture was at that point just before it begins to rise again. Uh, And that that plateau is a a phase transition. The proteins are denaturing and beginning to coagulate. You're getting a change of phase. That's why the texture changes. And that's one of the subjects that uh, the course is going to go into in in great detail. So here's an example of someone really pioneering not that long ago in understanding exactly what's going on there. Uh, Then I have to get a little personal about it because, (laughs) Thank you. Uh, In 1976 or 77, I first came to Cambridge uh, with the idea of writing a book about the science of cooking and uh, found, uh, to my surprise and delight, that I couldn't have picked a better place to come because the Schlesinger Library is this amazing treasure trove of um, books about uh, about the household in general uh, and cooking in particular, and so I spent hours and hours and hours over there learning about the, the history of different techniques, uses of ingredients. When people figured out uh, different sorts of things, that's where I discovered Liebig's malign influence on on people who cook meat, um, because I, I was able to march down a shelf and see all of a sudden this guy Liebig is being mentioned and, and the cooking of meat is now different. Uh, so I, I, I'm tremendously grateful to the Schlesinger Library for existing. Um, and I was able to write a book and uh, uh, also discovered around that time uh, the pleasure of engaging in that kind of science myself, doing the kind of thing that Nicholas Curti had done a couple of decades before. And um, the very first experiment I did had to do with a, um, uh, a statement of Julia Childs, also a Cambridge denizen, uh, in Mastering Art of the Art of French Cooking, saying that if you're going to make a souffle, like Nicolas Curtis or a meringue, or something like that, and you're going to whip egg whites into a foam, you should use a copper bowl, because copper, acidifies the egg whites, and makes the foam more stable. And when I first read that, I thought, well, that doesn't make any chemical sense, metal is not going to change the pH of the, of the uh, egg whites, and so there's probably nothing to this, it's probably an old cook's tale, forget about it. Uh, and I did forget about it, and didn't write anything about it, uh, until shortly before my book was going to be published, and I was on the search for inexpensive illustrations to put into my book, because my my sister had done line drawings, but there were still big blocks of text that we wanted to break up. So I found an old French uh, book about different professions, and one of those professions was pastry cook. And there was a a plate uh, in in that book showing a pastry kitchen, and in that kitchen, a young boy whipping like this. uh, The plate had a key, and the key said, that the uh, figure in under number eight was whipping egg whites to make biscuits in a copper bowl. So I thought, well, if, if it's being said in 1770 and Julia Child is saying it in 1970, maybe I should take a look after all. And so I did the experiment I should have done in the first place and found, as you can see, that there's a tremendous difference. The color is different the consistency is different, the stability is different, it takes three times as long to do it in a copper bowl as in a glass bowl. Everything was different, and nothing was known about the chemistry, so some friends and I tried to figure it out, Uh, wrote up a paper for the journal Nature. Uh, They sent it through their regular review process. I think it's the only paper they've published that quotes Julia Child, and uh, (laughs) we, we quoted Plato, who said we needed to know more about what's going on in the kitchen. Uh sent it through the review, review process, and um, it was accepted. One reviewer said, uh, the science is fine, but the subject is fluffy. <laughs> so, I'll take that. Uh, so for me, and this is, this is why I brought it up to the students today, for me this was an example of how easy it is to be fooled by your own preconceptions into missing something really important. So uh, uh, cooks are amazing. They they have an amazing um, bank of sensory information about the way foods behave in the kitchen, and I never, not since that day, have I ever discounted what I hear from a chef. You know, if a chef tells me, you know, if you add parsley stems to the cooking water, it keeps things green. I doubt it, but I'll go try it, because you never know. (laughs) Anyway, um, a few years after that, Uh, came uh, gatherings of chefs and scientists in Sicily, and this is where the term molecular gastronomy came from. I think it's a really unfortunate term. uh, It was a marketing term to try to get the Scientific Conference Center to accept cooking as a reasonable subject for holding a conference. They said, we can't call it the science of cooking. Give me a better title. We came up with molecular gastronomy, and had we known that it was going to have this kind of afterlife, I don't think we would ever would have proposed it. Uh, But this picture is especially interesting to me because in addition to having a much younger me in it uh, uh, over there, uh, and Nicolas Curti at at the center stage, there's this man. Uh, He was a French physicist, and he's the a man who gave the name to the science that's being taught in this course, soft matter science or soft matter physics. So his name was Pierre-Gilles Dijen, and he won the Nobel Prize in 1991, essentially for studying phenomena that, until that time, really weren't that respectable in the physics community. I mean, you studied particle physics. That was the real thing. You didn't study soap bubbles which part of his, uh, his Nobel lecture was about, the physics of soap bubbles. And he, he just demonstrated by, uh, by analyzing things carefully and presenting that analysis that the physics of everyday life is every bit as challenging and maybe more challenging than the kind of standard physics that was being done at the time. He had to come up with a name for this sort of the, the physics of everyday life, and the name he came up with was soft matter, uh, and he says in this quote that you, know, you have to find the right name for uh, fields like this, otherwise you're going to scare away good students who might otherwise <laughs> make real contributions. Okay, so um, that's it about the, the science part. Uh, now what I'm going to do is tell you uh, very quickly about the evolution of haute cuisine, The course is about um, the science of cooking from haute cuisine to soft-matter science, and many of the chefs who will be coming uh, in the rest of the series are are playing a major role in redefining haute cuisine these days. So I want to tell you a little bit about how we got to this point and then a little bit about those chefs. So first of all, um, there's nothing new about innovation, nothing innovative about innovation. This slide from the middle of the 18th century is the first one I know of, first um, use that I know of for the term nouvelle cuisine. We associate that more with what happened in France in the 1960s and 70s, but in fact, people were thinking about nouvelle cuisine in the 18th century. And what uh, this uh, mention of it is about, and there are other citations I could give you, is really about the transition from medieval cooking to what we would now call classic French cooking. So the original Nouvelle Cuisine was classic French cooking. Get rid of all those spices, get rid of all the vinegar, make things that are balanced and delicate, uh, mainly based on um, uh, meat stocks, veal stock, beef stock, chicken stock. Those are the bases for most of the classic uh, French sauces. So that that was Nouvelle Cuisine. The exponents of classic French cooking in the 19th and 20th centuries were carême and escoffier. They really codified uh, haute cuisine, classic French cooking, uh, and codified it to the point that there was really no wiggle room for chefs to do what, what might move them. So, uh, just as an example, if you go to... Uh, Escoffier's guide culinaire, and you ask, what recipes does he have for slices of beef tenderloin? He has more than 100 recipes for that one cut of meat. There are something like 4,000 recipes in the whole book. Um, More than 100 recipes. He tells you how thick the slices should be. He tells you that they need to be on croutons that have been fried in butter. He tells you that you use this sauce if you have this accompaniment and that sauce if you have that accompaniment. Uh, Everything is laid out, and people expected this. You go to a a French restaurant in in Paris, and this is what Escoffier says, this is what it should be, and you're measured by how well you meet the standard. Uh, You can imagine that that might be discouraging to people who wanted to do something different. And so in the... um, Let's see, did I miss one there? No. Um, uh, in the 1960s and 1970s. <clears throat> ah, uh, a virtual dessert. No equation, right? I didn't. Uh, <laughs> he's the guy who invented the melting chocolate cake. How many of you have had the chocolate cake with the sauce inside? So, yeah. Michel Bra is the guy who invented it, and it's it's something that he's remembered for all over the world. He's revered as a chef among in, in the, the profession of chefs for being someone who took up this challenge of um, uh, taking back cooking to the chef himself and not to the book on the shelf that tells you how you're supposed to do stuff. So he was a, a French chef, a very good French chef, is. Uh, he's still alive and very active, um, who, who set aside Caram set aside Escoffier, and took his own route. And uh, so in classic French cooking, if you're going to make a cake, you make a cake, and you put a sauce around it. You don't have the sauce in the cake. He made it the hard way, uh, by making a, a ganache and putting the ganache inside the cake and then working out the timing so that just as the cake is getting cooked, the ganache is melting. There's actually a much easier way to do it, which is just to undercook a, uh, <laughs> a, uh, a properly, um, properly made uh, dough or batter, uh, and that's what the class is going to do. They're going to be studying heat transfer by making this dish, um, but it's an example of the kind of um, uh, freeing up of the creative process that took place in the Nouvelle Cuisine of the 1960s and 70s. Another dish that he is uh, remembered for in the profession, although uh, I, I think this hasn't been as widely influential as the chocolate cake, is the gargouillou, which is a salad. Uh, it's kind of a vegetable salad. Uh, What what distinguishes it is that he uh, lives in the Auvergne out in the country, and he decided, the heck with these composed salads of carrots and turnips and this and that, I live in a part of the country where there are all these amazing things growing along the the path when I go for a walk in the morning. I'm going to make a salad out of what I see every day, and it's going to change every day depending on what I see. And so he made this dish. Gargouilleu means essentially just mixture. It's a, a local dialect term. And it's, uh, it's, you know, the salad as the chef wants to make it based on what he's got available on that particular day. Again, that doesn't sound terrifically innovative to us on the other side of it, but it was a revolution uh, at the time. And uh, made a tremendous, uh, had a tremendous impact on the thinking of other chefs in the world. One of those chefs uh, is responsible for the, uh, the spirit of cooking that's going on today, this kind of experimental spirit, and he's in this picture. So this was taken in 1987 in kind of full uh, nouvelle cuisine mode, and there was a chef there by the name of Jacques Maximin. He's the one not wearing a talk, wearing jeans instead of a uniform, Uh, and a jacket instead of an apron. Uh, And he gave a talk at this meeting of chefs in which he said, uh, to be really creative means not copying. Again, doesn't sound like a remarkable uh, uh, aphorism, but it really struck a chord with this guy, uh, whose name is Ferran Adria, and who um, has said ever since that that was sort of the moment that he fell off the donkey and uh, it changed his life. He said, okay, uh, I'm gonna take that seriously. I'm gonna gonna really not copy. I'm even gonna try not to copy myself. I'm gonna make something different every year. And what that did for the profession of chefs was to uh, allow them to step back and say, we have all these wonderful traditions, and it's wonderful to be a French chef or a Spanish chef, uh, but this is a different world now. We, we can get any ingredient from anywhere in the world. We are understanding more and more about the basic principles involved in cooking. Uh, we can use techniques from Asia. We can uh, do anything. So why not explore all these possibilities and see what we can do that hasn't been done before? And that is really the, the spirit of all this stuff that you see uh, uh, on the tabletop here. Uh, I'm going to give you a few examples of the kinds of dishes that came out of that. This is Ferran Adria's gargouilleux, and he explicitly said that. He said, the gargouilleux was amazing. It, it was, you know, I'd never thought of the possibility of doing something like that, but I couldn't just copy that. I couldn't just go out and herbs and spices and put them in a salad because he's already done that, and I have to not copy. So what he did was take that spirit of um, um, uh, uh, finding something new uh, and transformed it in such a way that instead of uh, giving you ingredients as they are pretty much in nature, he's taken ingredients and transformed them so that you actually have no idea what you're about to eat. You know, that, that plate gets put down in front of you, you don't know what, what any of it is. You have some guesses, and in some cases, he intentionally misleads you so that you're gonna guess wrong and be surprised. So he, he uh, uh, makes it possible for the chef to think, uh, ingredients are wonderful, but we can do things with ingredients that haven't been done before and present uh, states of matter, soft matter, that have not been seen in the kitchen before. And that's kind of what animates this, uh, this spirit. So, that's the Nueva Nouvelle Cuisine, as, as uh, the New York Times named it. Uh, uh, Ferran is especially famous for the foam that he was holding in the previous slide, and also for something called spherification, making caviar-like uh, beads out of anything, pretty much. This is melon caviar. Um, Next week, uh, Joann Roca will be coming here and uh, demonstrating a number of things. One of them, uh, the the separation of aromas from the ingredients that you find them in using this machine, uh, rotary rotary evaporator. So that again, you take a look at these, uh, for example, those white things. It looks like there may be, you know, a champagne or a lemon or you know something something like that. In fact. They're flavored with chocolate and coffee and passion fruit and tonka bean, all very dark and deep colors, but they've been separated from their colors. So you experience those flavors in a way pure, if that's a reasonable thing to say. You know, without the input of your eyes. So you, and you taste them differently when you taste them without those colors. Uh, Jose Andres will be coming, and he made uh, this little bonbon of. Um, olive oil that you pop in your mouth, it melts in your mouth, and he made the shell with uh, a material that's used mostly to make cough drops because it's, uh, it's not sweet the way sugar is, and, uh, and it doesn't behave in the way sugar does. It doesn't absorb as much moisture from the, from the air, so it's much easier to work with, and you can make things like this and, and actually serve them. Um, uh, Wiley Dufresne will, c- will be coming from New York. Do you want to, um, are we going to do mokumegane here, or I've forgotten. Uh, no, we're not, so we'll, but we'll come back to it. Dave is going to demonstrate uh, a, dish, yeah. a, a dish that he's made um, using what's called meat glue. Uh, and meat glue is what allowed Wiley Dufresne to make these things, uh, noodles that look like noodles, but they're actually pure shrimp. And, uh, and a chicken McNugget, uh, which is skin surrounded by dark meat, surrounding white meat. So you get a bite of the whole chicken all in one, all in one bite, uh, a reconstructed chicken. Uh, and then Grant Ackitts will be coming from Chicago. He works a lot with, uh, with in- interesting textures, and uh, this uh, bottom right, a uh, panel shows you something that I first saw a year or so ago, and I'm still trying to puzzle out, although I understand that someone here at Harvard has, has nailed it down. How do you pour something onto a flat surface and have one corner make a right angle like that? <laughs> Soft matter. <laughs> and then finally, just this year, uh, Nathan Mirvold, uh, who used to be at Microsoft, uh, has published a an amazing compendium of modern techniques, modern understanding, uh, scientific analysis of uh, of cooking in a series of books that are just unlike anything else that's that's been published before. And he is coming later on, I think, in November, to give a lecture about heat transfer and about uh, about experimenting in the kitchen. And this is just an example of uh, the kind of illustration that you'll find in that book. It's, uh, it's really amazing. Six volumes of this kind of stuff. So, okay, that's, that's a quick summary of, uh, of cuisine at the moment, and uh, now I'm going to turn it over to Dave, who's going to show you some examples of these things that I've been just showing you pictures of, although the first one will just be pictures.
2: Uh, yeah, we're not going to do any plated we're not doing any plated stuff, so we figured I'd show you something plated that had a lot of different techniques in it that, that used new techniques. This, uh, you anyone familiar with Japanese metalworking? Uh, really? Okay. <laughs> well, uh, it turns out that if you uh, take a bunch of metals and you, you fold them and beat them, fold them and beat them, fold them and beat them, that then when they are sanded off again, you get this wavy wood grain effect, uh, which is pretty awesome. So, uh, what happened was uh, a, a company, Hobart and Star Chefs, another company, came to me and they said, Dave, we will give you a $3,500 slicer if you can come up with a good uh, demo that requires a really good slicer. And so I'm going to show you <laughs> <laughs> that, that demo. Uh, all right, so can you fire up the, the video? Uh, yeah. That's how this world works, baby. <laughs> okay. So uh, it's about to go into its thing, ignore this, we'll talk about that later, that's just onions. Onions, flash-infused onions, yay, okay. Now, uh, what I'm doing here is, this is gonna be a meat glue demo, by the way, in Slicer. I'm making a mold, that's just potatoes and a cutting board. I took, in my the school where I work, I took one of the amphitheater's cutting boards without telling them and I chopped it up into pieces. And I put some of it in the oven uh, because cutting boards become malleable, which I noticed uh, when you put a cutting board too close to the uh, stove, it becomes malleable. So I figured I'd use that on purpose. Uh, I'm making a mold here and I'm going to vacuum it. When it vacuums down, I'll get a mold in the shape of those potatoes and you'll see see why later. The main thing here is a thing called meat glue, which is an enzyme, Uh, and it it transglutaminases the enzyme, and it has the mystical property that it bonds uh, proteins together. It bonds uh, two amino acids together, actually in a covalent bond, and uh, once they're together, they're not going to come apart again. The bond is heat-stable. The strength of the bond is similar to the strength of the bond between two muscles in a piece of meat, so it's not not horrible, it's not weird. You don't notice that there's a, texturally, you don't notice that there's a glue joint. it is, uh, it's had some controversy recently but, uh, because people think it's some sort of horrible Franken-thing, but in fact, uh, it's totally natural, it comes from a soil bacteria that they found, and there's transglutamination in all of us actually right now. It's part of our blood clotting pathway, although not the actual thing that makes it clots. it's part of your skin formation. Uh, it's, it's good stuff, great stuff. Uh, so what I'm going to do here to show you how the meat glue works is I've par-frozen some salmon and some fluke, and I'm putting it through the amazing Hobart Model 3000 slicer. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and when, it, when, it, when they're all sliced out very thin, I'm just going to sprinkle, and this is the way this stuff works, you just sprinkle the meat glue on like, like it's a powdered donut, or like a beignet. And, and uh, over the course, it's, the, it's basically it's the enzyme, plus some maltodextrin, which is just a, a, sugar, uh, a, you know, a starch breakdown product that's tasteless and bulks up, and a little bit of casein, in this case, to help act as a bonder protein. And you put it together like this, and you layer it. What the heck? Can you fast forward to where we were? I did this during the morning too. I'm horrible with this pointer. I need a separate laser pointer. No, it's like, yeah. No, that's, n- yeah. Oh, thanks. Oh, this is the blue one? Oh, the green one. Green, oh yeah, he needs this anyway. Can you move it forward? That's a fake thing, because I stole it from the Starship website. There you go. Yeah, 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 the little bar. Yeah, yeah, take it, take it. Like, no, like, <laughs> over half, yeah, more. Yeah, 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 more, more. Yeah, yeah, more. Come on, come on. More. Anyway, while he's getting that, I'll tell you about meat glue. Uh, so meat glue, uh, what you do is is you put it together, and the reaction takes about uh, four hours uh, in the fridge to, to, to work. Um, when Wiley's doing it, you saw the, the shrimp noodles. I'll talk a little bit about those. Since Is he going to do that? He's not going to do that, actually, for the public lecture, right? That one's heat setting, you know, when you heat up an enzyme and tell it denatures, it acts faster and faster. So he mixed the enzyme with shrimp and then sprayed it into a water bath where it sets in t- instantly. So meat glue is just fantastic for special effects. Anyway, so here I've layered up the, the fish, two different colors with uh, the meat glue. I put it in a vacuum machine to get the air out so that it, even though fish looks like it's together, on a microscopic scale, they're still far apart. So you put it in a vacuum, you suck it down. And now I have a block of fish. I let it sit for four hours. Uh, I then break it out... And let it air out a little bit. Par freeze it again, and slice it, and you get this, uh, which is the wood grain, uh, wood grain fish. (laughs) Um, And I mean, look, it was worth it. Like, look, I got the slicer. Let me put it that way. (laughs) Uh, So. uh, so that's, that's that, which is the salmon and the fluke. This is, um, this is some fennel and apple that I also shaved on the slicer. I did everything on this slicer uh, that I infused with curry oil. These are some onions also on the slicer, infused with, uh, with vinegar in the vacuum machine, a technique I'll show you later. Creme fraiche with liquid nitrogen pulverized herbs, which I won't demo. Dehydrated, uh, this is like, uh, I think, Lovage or something, dehydrated uh, uh, pumpernickel. And 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 the, oh, and these are pressure cooked mustard seeds. So we can go f- go forward to the uh, actual picture, so I can see. So it's not so blocky. Next time I'll call star chefs and ask for a picture in advance. So here you have it. So uh, you know you have the base of the fish, which is you know sliced very thin. You slice it. Fro- you slice it basically like a steakum. You want the steakum texture. Steakums, anyone? And then uh, you let it thaw out on the plate, right? You cannot handle it when it's, it can't be handled when it's thawed because it's too thin. Uh, and then here you have, these are just, this is like tech on a plate here. So this is the two different kinds of vacuum infusion, this one with oil, this one with water-based uh, stuff, vinegar, which I'm going to demonstrate later. This is a technique, old technique dehydration, but it's being used by chefs quite a bit nowadays, in, uh, not in new ways, I mean, it's dehydration, it's like old school, but it's used a lot on the plate with dehydrated stuff in a way you wouldn't have seen maybe 30 years ago. Uh, this is uh, the creme fraiche, but uh, the little dots in it are actually fresh herbs, and this is a relatively new technique that requires liquid nitrogen. You freeze herbs, super super solid with liquid nitrogen, and then you blend them in a blender, and because they're frozen, they shatter and grind like dry herbs, and then when they thaw out again, uh, they're still green and fresh, assuming you blanch them first, otherwise they will turn brown and rotten. Uh, this is uh, the pressure-cooked mustard seeds I told you about earlier. They're pressure-cooked in vinegar. Uh, then after they're pressure-cooked, they're drained, and uh, some sugar is folded into it, so they, they, they're kind of like a bread-and-butter pickle, mustard, pop-in-your-mouth caviar thing. So that's, that's that. That's that dish. So we're not going to do a plated thing, but I just want to show you kind of like how these techniques can stack together in a dish. Okay? Next. That's the last slide, right? It is,
1: yes.
2: All right, so we won't need the pointer anymore. Thanks, professor. Um, I probably haven't said enough about meat glue, but later when question time comes, you guys can ask me some questions about, about meat glue. How many of you think it's a horrible abomination, meat glue? Really? Uh-oh. I know there's more of you out there. <laughs> You just don't want to take me on? All right, that's fair. Uh, You shouldn't take on someone who spends their days thinking about ways to take you on if you say something to me about it. Um, So uh, one of the things that uh, they're going to deal with a lot in the class is um, textures and gels and different gels properties. So uh, I took one of my favorite gels, agar agar, uh, to demonstrate for the class today. And uh, agar is amazing uh, because it's, it's... the new class of gels and thickeners that people are using in the kitchen now uh, have the general term hydrocolloid. In general, they get a bad rap because they sound gross, like xanthan and carrageenan, and they've been used for many decades to kind of make food worse, to make it easier to ship, to make it cheaper, to basically either stabilize or reduce quality in a compromised food situation. And what's gone on in the past 10 years is these ingredients are being used not for that reason uh, but to make things better or more interesting. Um, Agar's a little interesting because although it is used industrially, it's also a traditional ingredient um, in uh, Asian cooking. It comes from a seaweed, again, it's 100% natural. Now, because it was school, I figured we'd make a gel from Concord grapes because that's like the school stuff, right? So this is Welch's Welch's grape juice, is what we made for them. And we're just uh, trying to demo different um, textures. So this is a set gel. This is... um, nine grams of agar in one kilo of grape juice. So this is basically uh, the texture of an agar gel. Agar gel is very firm, uh, it's, it's, it's elastic in that it doesn't, uh, it doesn't stay deformed, it bounces back, but it's also extremely brittle. When you cut it, you see it cuts very well and it shears very well because it's very brittle. Right? So this is an agar gel. Now. Another interesting property about agar, you notice when I cut it, it doesn't, it doesn't go back together, and it never will. Once I break the gel, it's broken. But if you break the gel extremely violently by putting it in a blender, we make an entire new category of, uh, of material, and this is one that chefs use now all the time. This is an extremely popular um, thing that we call a fluid gel. What do you call it in the science biz, professor, the fluid gel? microgel microgel all right in the kitchen fluid gel in the class microgel this blender may or may not break one no second do 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 This morning, I made a horrible mess. The blender leaked everywhere. It was awesome. Okay. (laughs) So, you have a solid gel here, and then once you blend it, what you have is a bunch of particles right, of gel that we've broken up, basically in a fluid, and it is a fluid gel. So you can plate this thing like a puree, even though once you put it in your mouth, it goes back to basically being the viscosity of a juice. So a fluid gel is something that has, uh, when, it's not, when it has no force being put on it, has the properties of a gel. But once you apply shear, once you move it, stir it, put it in your mouth, it then takes on the properties of a fluid. This is a thick fluid gel that's used by, as a puree, and this is one of the main ways we use fluid gels. The other way that we use fluid gels is uh, making them very thin, and that's used for suspension. Anyone remember? The drink orbits, that's a fluid gel. Uh, Other, like, uh, you know, famous fluid gels, uh, Wiley's Fried Mayonnaise, which I'm sure he might talk about when he comes. But there's lots of applications for fluid gels uh, in the kitchen. I'm going to show you one more uh, because uh, we were supposed to be talking about foams a little bit. This fluid gel can now be foamed in an ISI thing. ISI, these things, these whipped cream makers, how many of you have one of these whipped cream makers? That's it? You should go buy one for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, you can make whipped cream, which is incredibly delicious. It, it is still the best—I think the oldest and best of those kind of foams, right? I mean, whipped cream is pretty. It's good. Um, <laughs> all right. Um, this is just a foamed. This is just a foamed fluid gel. When you foam a fluid gel. Remember, it's a fluid gel. It doesn't flow to the top of the thing, so before you hit it, you have to like go like this. Do not make the mistake of doing that if you've already uh, sprayed it once, and don't hold your hand over it because you're gonna spray grape jelly all over the camera. <laughs> Oops, ah, I didn't screw this on enough. Uh, but anyway, so if you, I didn't, sp- I might not have put enough in, now I'm gonna actually spray the camera just like I was joking about, awesome. Uh, I didn't, put it, I didn't put enough in, but you can see basically you foam it and what happens when you foam it is the fluid gel uh, is, is thin enough to come out of the nozzle, but once it comes out and there's no more shear being applied, it holds itself as a foam. Uh, this can also be used to stabilize uh, whipped creams, which is typically how I would use it in a kitchen. So this is three ways to use a very simple hydrocolloid. This hydrocolloid can also be used to do spherification. I don't do that, but you can do that. Um, but here's my favorite thing to do with agar. Agar can also be used to clarify. And this is nine grams in a liter. This is two grams in a liter. This is lime juice set with two grams in a liter. And this is very loose gel. Can you see that? Little, no. Uh, okay. Uh, no. Uh, let me see. Can, uh, <laughs> all right. So, This is a very very weak gel, so what we're gonna do instead of violently breaking it up like we did in the blender I'm just gonna take a whisk one of the interesting properties of agar is that it is extremely, extremely porous. It bleeds liquids out. And in fact, one of the old ways of purifying agar was to set uh, gels with agar and then uh, let it freeze and thaw and let the water drip out of it. Okay? So you see we've broken it into kind of curds and whey, and the liquid that's being held loosely by the agar gel now is weeping out of all the places where we've broken it. Which means... We can use it to clarify. Do 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 do. Let's see. We put cheesecloth around it so it wouldn't look like we were putting it directly through a towel. Did it work? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let me see. Can you see that it's water clear? Now. oh you can't. I can't see either, All right. I'll put it into a glass, how about that? Uh, when you, champagne glass, there's a champagne glass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Dead clear lime juice. And still with the fra- flavor of fresh lime juice. If you were gonna clarify something that could last, you could use freeze saw clarification, which has been around for, for several years, but if you need to clarify right now, because lime juice is two days old, is what? Crap. <laughs> mm, all right. So, uh, all right. Uh, I actually have a better technique this, than this, uh, but uh, you need a centrifuge. So until you buy your centrifuge, this is the way to do it. You can do this one at a campsite if you really wanted to. Uh, the trick to get the yield out of it is is uh, is not squeezing too hard. That'll eject the agar through it, but gently massaging the sac to obtain the highest yield. <laughs> this is enough, this is enough of that. Okay, so this is four ways of using agar with some kind of you know old ways, of gel, fluid gel is a newer way, clarification even newer way. So this is the again the, the ability to use uh, things that have been around a, a long time in a new way. So real quickly now I'm going to bust through two kinds of infusion. Any questions on this? We good on this? Look, I know that what I'm saying probably, when you get home, you're gonna be like, what the heck was he talking about? <laughs> you, can, you can go on uh, my, the, the blog that I write is uh, theoretically more clear, because my wife reads it and makes sure it's clear, uh, and it's cookingissues.com, and most of this stuff is on there um, in some form or another. So um, we're gonna do vacuum infusion right now, which is the same thing you saw in the, uh, in the, in the fish, in the wood grain fish. This is just regular, like, you know, regular puny, unclarified lime juice and uh, sugar, and a little bit of water. And these are cucumbers. I'll save one that's undone. So the cucumber, uh, the, the issue with a cucumber, uh, the way you can make a cucumber better is, uh, first of all, to add uh, liquor to it. We're not going to do that here. Uh, but, <laughs> but I've been known to do it. Uh, but is, is to remove the air and inject a liquid into it. And to do that, we use a vacuum machine. So this is actually a really kind of nice vacuum machine here. Let me see. So when I turn the vacuum on, can you, can you, can you see it, this. Okay, can you see how it's starting to bubble a little bit? It's not boiling yet. What's actually happening is the air is being pulled out of the cucumbers. All right. In a minute, it's actually going to start boiling the liquid even though it's, uh, it's, ice, it's ice down. And the reason is, is, as you apply a vacuum, you lower the temperature at which the liquids boil. Right? Uh, which is the reason why when we do vacuum work, we try to keep our food as cold as possible. So I'm just going to sit here for a minute and only the ones underneath are going to really in, uh, infuse properly, uh, but I'm just going to let it run for another 35-40 seconds and we're going to suck all the air out of the cucumbers. Now, once we suck the air out of the cucumbers, it's covered in a liquid. Liquid is not compressible, right, it's incompressible. So when I let the air back into this vessel, the air is going to come back in, but instead of going back into the cucumber, it's just going to, co- it's just going to push the liquid straight into the cucumber and we're going to have a flash infusion. And so this is one of the techniques that chefs use, chefs use time and time and time again. Hold on, that's probably enough to get the picture. Ready? And you see how you can't see them anymore? The reason is they're camoed, they've been totally infused with, uh, with, li- with uh, the flavorful liquid. Oh, I'm very happy. <laughs> look, they look like stained glass or like, or like pieces of jewelry. And this works with basically any... Oh, here's, here's, here's one of the, the bigger ones, so you can see maybe better. Can you see it with the light through it? I don't know. They're like, they're like pieces of stained glass. And so, this, this technique is a technique that chefs use to get the look of things that are cooked, but with hyper crisp lines and very fresh flavors because they haven't been cooked. They just look like they've been cooked. When you cook something, you also break down the air cells and cause it to look uh, transparent like this, but they're not raw. Uh, what do you think? Alright? So, I'll show, you, uh, I'll show you one more infusion technique, and this is something uh, that I've worked on. Um, unfortunately, we don't have enough to make liquor for everyone. But this is a rapid, in- <laughs> this is a rapid infusion technique using uh, pressure. So it's the opposite kind of, or an analog, to what goes on in a vacuum. In a vacuum, we remove pressure, suck the air out, and then use a little bit of pressure to push it back in. Here, I'm going to use a higher pressure to force a liquid in under force, and then suck it back out again by, re- by removing that pressure. So it's the exact opposite of what's going on in a vacuum. So this is coffee, 35 uh, grams of it or so. Do, 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 do. Then this this technique is covered in excruciating detail on, uh, on the blog. Just look up, I don't know, I think the, the post title is infusion uh, Profusion or something like that, I always come up with dumb titles. Okay, so that's uh, 35 grams of coffee, 500 grams of uh, only the best Smirnoff's Vodka, the best $12 you can spend. <laughs> and we're going to use nitrous oxide chargers in the whipped cream. This is, now, This here's one of the real reasons to buy one of these things, is to do some infusion, <laughs> seriously. And that's all mine does at home. Okay, uh, now I'm gonna put a charger in, and as I put the charger in, we're gonna put the coffee and the—if I can do it—we're gonna put the coffee and the liquid under pressure. Is this cross-threaded? Is this gonna cause me problems? Oh, here we go. Oh my gracious! I'm gonna maybe I use the white one. Hmm. shake it. That's a first. I've never had to do that in a demo before. I'm going to put the second one in. All right. Now I'm going to agitate it. what's happening under the pressure, and I don't think I'm getting the full thing in. Should I like, did it feel like I got the full thing in?
1: It it sounds like it stopped.
2: Okay, okay. So what's happening now under pressure is the liquor is being forced into the coffee because the coffee is porous. Hint, this works only on porous things, right? And I'm going to shake it and it's going to be forced into the coffee and I'm going to let it sit for about two minutes. And then uh, after it sits, I'm going to violently vent it out. And that's why I don't want to uh, don't chill this, right? The more it's chilled, the more soluble the nitrous is going to be in the uh, liquid. And so the less violent bubbling I'll get. And my theory, unproven, is that uh, the actual more violent it gets, the more flavor you're boiling back out of the stuff, right? Makes sense. I haven't been. No one's ever come up and said I'm wrong in any sort of way that makes sense to me. Although I'm willing to be proven proven wrong. Uh, has it been two minutes yet? No. <laughs> okay. What? Have something to drink. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> hey, I'm terrible at, terrible at, at calming down. Okay. So uh, while we're doing that. <laughs> uh, maybe I'll start uh, on the, uh, other, the other drink. Do we have time to do the second one real quick? Yes. Okay, so I'm going to talk a little bit about carbonation. Now, uh, how many of you out there own a, some form of carbonation rig, soda stream, blah, blah, blah? Good, 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 good. How many of you own a 20 or 5-pound CO2 tank? <laughs> All right, that's the way to go. That's the cheap way to go, no offense to the soda stream. A 20-pound CO2 tank will carbonate uh, two to four hundred gallons of product, (laughs) okay? So it really is economical in the long run and fits underneath a standard counter, (laughs) so you know. Uh, But you can carbonate in one of these. Um, It's just the problem is it's very, very wasteful. Uh, Now, when I did nitrous, I used nitrous oxide here um, and the reason it's used in whipped cream is that nitrous doesn't have the prickly sensation in your uh, mouth that CO2 does. So, when we don't want to have a prickly sensation, we use nitrous. And that's why I use it here. I don't want any residual carbonation taste in my liquor, right? If you want carbonation, obviously, you're going to use CO2. Now, uh, the reason I clarified the lime juice right, is so that I could, act, I could do a good job of carbonating. If you were to take regular lime juice like this and uh, carbonate with it, it would spray everywhere when you're trying to carbonate, especially if you were trying to get something really bubbly, like a gin and tonic, for instance. Um, so in order to get really high carbonation, you need to do clarification. That's why I spent many years and many thousands of dollars trying to uh, work on uh, clarifying things. Uh, so anyway, so let's, let's, uh, let's carbonate something. Is this lime juice? Yeah? yeah. Let's see how she tastes. Yeah. Uh, another good thing about to remember about carbonation is, if you're going to carbonate liquor, which I highly recommend, you need to um, add more bubbles, more pressure, more CO2, Than you would if you were carbonating uh, a regular liquid. And the reason, water I mean, and the reason for this is that uh, CO2 is more soluble in uh, alcohol than it is in. Water and so to have the the sensation isn't because the stuff is soluble. The sensation is because the CO2 is coming out of solution onto your tongue. So you need to put more CO2 into alcohol to have the same level of bubbliness than you would in uh, in water. So the higher so for instance, if you're going to force carbonate wines. Uh, you're going to carbonate at one pressure, roughly uh, 30 to 35 psi. Uh, if you're going to do sake, you're going to go about five psi higher. Mixed drinks, we tend to rock around 40 psi at uh, zero. It's also temperature dependent. Everything's everything dependent. Temperature dependent, you know, <laughs> pressure dependent. Okay, I'm going to do gin and lime juice. I didn't bring my quinine with me. I, I just I didn't I, look. I didn't feel like bringing a bitter. Uh, powdered substance back from Colombia, where I just did my last demo. <laughs> it, just, it just seemed like a really, really bad idea. <laughs> Has that been two minutes yet? Yeah. All right, hold on a sec. I'll make this and then I'll ice it down and carbonate it after I show you this thing. See how this tastes. I'm only making one. The other thing about um, carbonation is that people are used to drinking carbonated beverages that are fairly low in alcohol, and carbonation uh, increases the rate of alcohol delivery to your body. <laughs> so, you're going to want to go ahead and water them down a little bit, or people will be on the floor, uh, which which, uh, which, I've, which I've done. Have you ever had I've once carbonated um, <laughs> bottle-strength gin and tonics, and it was just it was absurd. I actually redistilled the gin to get it bo- above bottle strength, so that when I added the lime and the uh, and the and the tonic and all that and the sugar, it would come back to bottle strength. And it was only tasted good at, at exactly minus 18 C. Anything else, no good. Uh, and it was just a horrible drunken thing. Okay, ready to vent. <laughs> Always put something over the thing because it's going to make a mess. Vent violently. Nice. Oh, by the way, when one of these things suddenly stops like that, it means that you've blocked it. Don't trust it, it's going to spray all over your jacket. <laughs> there we go. Good. Okay coffee so this is cold coffee done extremely quickly uh, it's look learning about how to infuse things rapidly is ex- is so interesting to me because what flavors you pull out of a product are dependent on time, And temperature and pressure, so you can extract different products from something depending on how they're how they're extracted. So very short extractions on things like cocoa nibs tend to not favor the bitterness in them, and so you tend to get more of the chocolate notes and less of the bitterness. So you can do low sugar uh, low sugar things. So I don't think that these kind of infusion techniques are better or like old style long infusions or this. It's not a better or worse. They're just different. You know what I mean? It's a matter of uh, choosing whatever works best for the application. Where am I going to put this? We don't need this anymore, right? All right. That's a horrible waste. Okay, so I'm going to make a quick drink with this, and then we're going to carbonate, make a quick drink, and then questions and out. Yes? Yes? I normally hate creamy drinks, but this one's okay. It's, it's one, of, uh, one of milk, one of cream, two of booze. I did this one for the, uh, the Colombians, and they dug it, because, you know, coffee. Uh, Come on, really? It's almost there, guys. I know you can't. I don't want to stint on the coffee, though. The coffee is the, the coffee is the money. All right. There you go. And I'm using a rich simple syrup in this because I don't wanna add any more, uh, any more s- uh, water than is necessary because I've already diluted it with uh, milk and cream. Also, you're gonna wanna use cold milk and cream because duh, it's milk and cream, but also because it's gonna dilute less when you, uh, when you ice it down. I add some sugar, I'm gonna go a little ah, light on the sugar. And uh, I'm not serving you so I'm not using gloves because I can't find them. I could sit here and talk for like a couple of hours just on the ice and the shaking and whether or not it makes a difference. So if any of you guys are bartenders, we can come up and argue about it later, all right? Mm -hmm. Oh, coffee and milk are great like this to shake even if you don't have alcohol because it rebodies it. I drink only espresso and I like the body of espresso. And so shaking drink uh, brings back some of the body of of an espresso based drink. You, you You like my fancy serving cup here? Only the best. Anyway. It's good, right? It's good, right? <laughs> 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 Can you get your sound real right quick? That, give this sucker a quick rinse for me, because I only brought one set of cans. Okay, last up, uh, we're gonna, how does carbonate in the thing? I'm gonna carbonate in the thing. Okay, uh, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna shake it actually in the container, that's what I've decided to do. So I just made her wash my. my cans for nothing. Don't tell her when she gets back. So, One of the interesting things about uh, shaking a cocktail is I'm sure all of you who bartend will think that the longer I let it sit on the ice, the crappier it's going to get. And this is true over long periods of time. Uh, by crappy, I mean diluted. And the, um, uh, but the truth of the matter is, is that over short periods of time, you get very little additional dilution based on the ice staying there. Because there's, it, it's only dependent upon how fast the heat is leaking out of your system. Right? Also, the size of the ice doesn't really matter in terms of its chilling capacity. It only matters in terms of the surface area of the ice. But again, this is an argument I'm willing to have for the next three hours with anyone who comes down afterwards. <laughs> wrong, wrong container. Oh, man. I have no idea what this is going to taste like. Also. Uh, we were, we were supposed, uh, we, in, the, in the morning, we did liquid nitrogen as one of our things, but we're not doing the liquid nitrogen ice cream, but we're still going to serve you the liquid nitrogen marshmallows, yeah? Yeah! <laughs> <sighs> so, while I shake this, do you want to describe the, uh, what's going on with the liquid nitrogen while I shake this guy? Like, the, like the, you know, the water and the blah, 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 blah. And then you guys can start <laughs> ramping up the uh, liquid nitrogen, the crew.
1: <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I'll try to do what Dave does much better, uh, description of what's happening with liquid nitrogen. But, so liquid nitrogen is what? Minus, close to minus 200 Celsius. Uh, very, very cold. But um, it's, its chilling power is really not that much more than ice because it's, uh, it's uh, not as dense doesn't have the same heat capacity. Uh, So you can put something in it that doesn't have a lot of water, uh, which has a a very high heat capacity and therefore will get very cold, uh, and freeze it in liquid nitrogen. It's very, very cold, but if you pop it in your mouth, because it's essentially um, air and a little bit of gelatin, it just goes away. And so you can um, put marshmallows in liquid nitrogen, get them very cold, put them in your mouth, your mouth gets cold enough that you essentially breathe vapors out of every part of your uh, mouth and nose that happens to be open at the time. It's, it's a lot of fun. Um, in fact, the, the first guy who, who did this in a restaurant uh, designed it as a palate cleanser that was also kind of a mind cleanser. Uh, this is... Uh, Heston Blumenthal is his name. He has a restaurant called The Fat Duck, and I I happened to be around when he was developing this. And the idea was, you know, you you come into the restaurant. uh, He's out in the countryside, so it's been a long drive from London. You're probably late. You may may have had an argument in the car while you were getting there. Uh, He he just doesn't know what kind of state of mind you're arriving with, and he wants to kind of reset everything in you. So he developed this... um, this uh, palate cleanser, which is essentially a meringue, like a, like a marshmallow, but flavored with uh, lime and tea and vodka. And, uh, and he freezes these little meringues, table side, right in front of you, pulls them out, drains them, gives them to you, and everyone at the table gets one. You pop them in your mouth, and you're all snorting vapors <laughs> all over the place. <laughs> so the shock of the cold the acidity, the astringency, the alcohol, uh, the whole thing, and, and you just all break out laughing because it looks so silly, uh, now you're ready to sit down and have his meal. So, so it's a brilliant use of what, what liquid nitrogen does very well.
2: Back on the carbonation for a minute. Did you, uh, did you guys notice that I threw one charger into it and then vented it out pretty quickly afterwards? Those of you who noticed, I did that. This is an extremely expensive way to carbonate. It's okay for home if you just want to be fancy for you know a night and you do a little bit larger quantity than I did. Um, one of the main problems with carbonation is you need to get rid of the headspace when you carbonate. You need to get rid of the air in there. It does The air that's in the headspace uh, is kind of doubly bad. One, it's taking up space that could be taken up by carbon dioxide, which is greatly soluble in the liquid, whereas the, uh, whereas the air is not, by and large, being mainly nitrogen. Uh, but uh, the other thing is, is that shaking the air into it causes, uh, generates lots of little uh, nucleation sites to cause more foaming. So you get doubly shafted, two times shaft. So what I do is, is I put one charger in, lightly whiz it around, vent it. That gets rid of a lot of the nucleation sites and air that are present in it, and then I throw my carbonation charge on it. I'm going <laughs> to lightly vent this. Harvard requests that I wear uh, safety goggles, and rightly so, uh, when I'm using liquid nitrogen. I'm just going to chill this glass. Are we ready to do the marshmallows? Let's just start dumping liquid nitrogen into them. Okay. I just noticed, by the way, I didn't plan this. I just happened to notice as I was walking, uh, doing the demo, where's the where, where the, where the, oh yeah, look at this. I had no idea, how ballsy is that? Look at that. The strainer fits right over the uh, ed- edge of the ISI. Uh, I'm also going to chill a uh, champagne flute with liquid nitrogen before I hand out the liquid nitrogen, because this is the way you should chill champagne flute. <laughs> Here's your... Right, just, you know, a little bit of a swirl. You can do two at a time and then get a rack of champagne glasses, and then just dump from one glass to the next down the line. And if you do that, it's pretty quick, and it's about, um, it's about 10, 10 cents a glass, I think we last calculated is what it is. Now I have a nicely chilled glass that won't leave a ring on the table, and that won't make my hand cold, and only the inside's chilled, not the outside, so it's not gonna stick to my lips. And see whether this thing actually works here, huh? Oh, yeah. gin it's actually not really a tonic cuz there's no quinine but it's it's gin and tonic similar and you wish you were me <laughs> all right so i think we're going to serve marshmallows and marshmallows and questions right
1: here's to that yeah this is really good <laughs>
2: Great stuff. Which one do you want? Coffee or gin? I want that one. All right, I I'll, I'll pour one. you some more. So
0: while we, while we are preparing the marshmallows, we have a little time for questions. Also, I should say, outside, uh, these are the aprons that we made shape. up with all the I'm equations the from last year. You can get them outside, you can buy some, and also there'll be a book signing are by Hal and his book outside, if mm-hmm. you're interested, after the talk. So. We have time for a few questions. the wood grain fish taste? Delicious.
2: Can you repeat the question? The question was how does the wood grain fish taste? And I gave the pat answer, which is delicious. It's true. But the fact of the matter is, is that we had to run through a bunch of cycles of it before I got it delicious. Meat glue, transglutaminase has as a byproduct, that it produces a slight amount of ammonia in the reaction that flashes off during normal, uh, during normal like airing. And the first time that uh, I made it, I was so nervous about it sticking together that I over-meat glued it and then didn't allow the fish to air off. Right? Now when I do it, I use a very small amount of meat glue and I cut the bag off right after it's been suctioned down so that it can air out while it's doing it and there's no trace of ammonia. The fish itself is it's just, it's fish, it's delicious. You know, I, oh, I didn't tell you this. I sprinkled salt and a little bit of sugar, almost like a gravlax cure, on the salmon, so it's not a totally uncured salmon. I forgot to mention that. So it has a little bit of a cured taste to it, and it's, it's great. I mean, it's, it's, it's like you would normally eat those two pieces of fish, just in a new form. Okay. That, oh, by the way, I've been told to tell you that uh, I'm going to be back for a drinks public lecture that's drinks only sometime in November. November what? 10th. 10th. Okay. Uh, I have a little question and a little comment.
3: Uh, The question is that uh, you said you can uh, substitute nitrous oxide uh, for carbon dioxide. Now nitrous oxide is, is, uh, if I remember, is a laughing gas. Yep. And uh, also it can be converted in nitrogen dioxide which is a base of nitric acid which is extremely poisonous. Uh, if, if, If those effects come into, you know, uh, in your practical observation. Uh, my comment is this, I, um, the gentleman early on mentioned that um, Thomas Jefferson uh, put a, a spoon of oil in a, one acre of lake and uh, basically uh, one nanometer of thickness can be detected. I recently invented a new technique where you can detect one molecule of sugar in a, in, in a lake of Lake Michigan. It's called, can notice technique? All
2: right. Oh, regarding the nitrous, just to answer the, the comment on the nitrous, N2O is commonly used in the food industry and has been for years for whipped cream. It is, in fact, laughing gas, which is why most college students who buy whipped cream aren't <laughs> using the cream. <laughs> <laughs> You'll, You'll, you'll see that when I use whipped cream, I follow the instructions to turn the unit entirely upside down. <laughs> Whereas if you go like this, you get the other effects. I happen not to like it as a drug, but uh, there you have it.
1: So you were talking about uh, cooking with uh, pressure cookers. I'm over here. Um, you were talking about cooking with pressure cookers, and then you were demonstrating techniques with vacuums. Has anyone? worked on cooking in vacuums, and would that even be, make any sense to do that, to try to do that?
2: Many, many people have. Uh, There's uh, people who, uh, like the one you can go buy commercially today if you have a lot of money, is called an AccuSteam steamer, and it steams at a reduced uh, temperature by putting a vacuum pump. I don't understand quite the advantage of, of that, as opposed to just controlling the temperature accurately. Uh, vacuum frying is a technique that's used industrially so that you can get the crispiness by getting rid of the water at lower temperatures, so that if you want to make an apple chip, let's say, which has a high sugar content, if you fried it traditionally, it would brown too much. If you fry it under a vacuum, you can get the similar crunchiness, uh, but without... Um, without too much browning. So vacuum is used uh, for that. Vacuum ovens are used to set things. Yes, so there's many things. It tends to be more difficult, especially because once you suck a vacuum, you need to then, if you really want to do a good job, put a cold trap on it to recondense the moisture. So it tends to be more technically difficult. There's a famous piece of equipment called a gastrovac that I happen to think, I'm not gonna say anything about it. (laughs) (laughs) No,
1: no, go ahead.
3: Browning to seal the juices, which I actually saw uh, quoted
2: credulously in the New York Times in the last week. Is the, are the techniques pernicious or just the, uh, just the theory about, about what happens?
1: No, it's, it's the theory. I mean, browning is great because it generates flavor, but it's a mistake to think that browning is going to do anything for juiciness. Juiciness, the, the texture of the meat, is essentially a function of temperature. And so you don't have to even worry about what happens to the surface. If the inside is at 140, it'll still be kind of juicy. The moment it gets much above that, it's dry. And it doesn't matter what searing is done or not done. Yeah.
0: Any other questions? Yes.
1: I was just curious, as you experiment with different things, how often do you make something that tastes good versus how often do you end up with something that's not?
2: (laughs) Okay, that's an excellent question. Uh, Very often things taste very bad, Uh, but I think this is the case with all food. The question is can you can you learn from what you do and can you find the nugget of what might be delicious in it and then adapt it for for later it's very i mean look often there's times we're just throwing stuff up against a wall and and we're like ah uh. And, but you know, there's usually something you can learn. For anyone that's really interested in seeing how someone at the top of their game works, and I know he's coming here. Ferran, there's a new movie that trailed Ferran, uh, Adria, and El, El Bulli. And if you're not a cook, I can see how it would become boring to see someone eating food for two hours. But as a cook, I th- uh, I was I, I felt I learned a lot about the pro- even his process because he's so hardcore. You know what I mean? Uh, So if you want to see kind of the the yes, no, what's going on and then working, that movie is a good place to see someone doing it in the real life who's, you know, at the top of the game in the whole world. So, I mean, again, if you're not a food person, might be bored, but interesting for that.
0: One last question. Can you use use the microscope?
1: As I understand it, if you cook dried beans at too low a temperature, you end up with something that's poisonous, Uh, are there cases like this where experimenting runs into problems where you end up with poison chemicals because of some reaction that you've created? Um, Well, I mean, low temperature cooking does, uh, if it's low temperature enough, does raise the possibility that while you're cooking whatever it is you're cooking, you're also culturing microbes. And you do have to, if, if you want to experiment with that kind of thing, then it behooves you to find out you know, what those limits are. Um, they're fair, fairly well known, and so if you cook at low temperatures, you just cook longer to make sure that you're taking care of that problem. As far as beans or a particular food generating toxic compounds during cooking, I'm not aware of chefs, anything like that.
2: Chefs use ingredients that are straight up toxic that are traditional and one of the problems is when a traditionally toxic ingredient is taken out of its context and then used in a new way if you don't pay attention to what's going on. Tonka beans are example. Uh, that are toxic that are being used by chefs, you know, but as, you know, it's a it's a quite or like uh, apricot kernels, which you know, it, it, you know, can have a, a good amount of cyanide in them. So it's a, these are all traditional and used traditionally. The question is, is when you adapt them to new techniques, are you paying attention to the traditional things that hold you back from hurting people or not? And it's an interesting question.
0: Okay, so at the back. They're still making some liquid nitrogen uh, marshmallows, so if you want to blow some smoke, you should do that. This is just <laughs> nitrogen smoke. Uh, you can do that legally here. Uh, in the meantime, please give both Harold and Dave a big hand. Thank you.
1: Thanks a lot.